This is Coda Radio. Episode 453 for February 14th, 2022. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining me with a gold podcasting mic, it's our host, Mr. Domino. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. How how are you today in beautiful Kiev? <laughs> I like to call it Kiev. Um, I'm old school about that. Well, there's two pronunciations, something I learned in the breathless coverage in the wonderful Morning Joe show this morning. Yeah, man. You know what? I've actually decided to just turn off the news for the next couple of days. I'm taking like a news diet. I can't. I, the love of my life, Victoria Newland, started me on this path. <laughs> yeah, you got to make sure. And I'm really just trying to glue this thing, Chris. That's all I'm trying to do. Just trying to glue it. Uh, that would be great. If we could just glue this thing. That would be great. I, I think it's going to be a pretty fun, you know, for her, it's going to be a pretty fun experience. She's going to hand out sandwiches again. She's going to be great. So don't you worry about her. I think she's going to be like, told you so. It's the Pacific Northwest. That is in absolute chaos. And if I wanted to take a news diet and I was a Mazda driver, I would have zero choice but to listen to the news every moment I was in my car. Has news of this scandal made it to your shores? No. What's this? What scandal? A brilliant software bug has struck some Mazda drivers in the Seattle area. Oh, yeah. That listen to our local NPR affiliate. Now... Their head units are locked into that NPR affiliate no matter what they do. They can't, they, this, the you know, infotainment system doesn't boot up enough for them to turn it off, to change it to a different channel, or even see their backup camera. It is always playing NPR. This programming is possible thanks to listeners like you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay, you're listening to NPR, you're done. Welcome to the quiet storm. Yes. Now, initially, the response was, now, Mazda is going to take care of people. But initially, the response was, you're going to have to go schedule it with a vendor uh, with, you know, a service repair area. And you're going to have to spend $1,500 on a new head unit because there's no way we can fix this problem. We just have to replace the whole head unit. Can you guess what kind of software bug what could have conceivably caused this? The initial speculation was 5G. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, OK, so so the bug is I'm in my Mazda as one is. and I am being tormented. Now, did I have to tune to the NPR station myself? Yes. Yeah. You you had to be a listener originally for this bug to occur. This sounds like a really funny hack. Are we sure this is a bug? It, it is a bug, but it's a ridiculous bug. Okay. You want me to tell you? I'll just tell you. Because you're never going to guess it. I'm never going to guess it. Of course, the radio station uses this third-party intermediary company. Oh, God. That supplies metadata to the radio. You know, the radio head units that show like the channel name. And the song you're listening to? Yeah, like the guy's picture, the gal's picture, sure. Apparently, yeah, they can do pictures now. And this third-party company included a JPEG that didn't have the file extension. Else? Yeah, yeah. And that broke the head units forever. <laughs> I, I, that's the best. I, mean, I feel bad because it sounds super frustrating, actually, driving around for a few weeks with, like, no control over your radio. I don't think I'd drive the car. <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering what kind of system this Mazda head unit must speak. A lot of those head units are actually, uh, what is it? QNX? Are you thinking of QNX? QNX, thank you. It was to say it's, it's the cute thing, right? Yeah. Usually Linux systems don't give a crap about file extensions. I mean, it helps, but you can, I've done it. 
you shouldn't do it. It's such an edge case. You could you can kind of understand why they wouldn't test for it, although you can understand why they should, but why maybe they didn't think of it. I think it's just perfect that it's NPR. I know. <laughs> it's like probably the most chill, frustrating radio station you could probably listen to. Because if, you know, say you want some music that day or nothing. You have a long trip with like a, a little kid. And the poor guys, the poor little guys got to listen to like, today we have in on Quiet Storm. And all the Bluetooth was dead. Like you couldn't play anything from your phone. Your your phone call stuff wouldn't work. I'm assuming you're just locked. Like you can't plug in an iPhone. You can, yeah, you're just done. Yep. <laughs> Daddy, can I listen to uh to the Wreck It Ralph song, which is called Sugar Rush, and is burned into my very soul? Um, no, no, you cannot, my boy. We're apparently listening to this book review about some lady growing turnips or you know the ukraine which perhaps you're trying to take a little bit of time from right now (laughs) me no no so the super bowl was last night very important to a lot of people i was rooting for the Bengals. los angeles won saving me roughly eighteen hundred dollars i was going to buy a system 76 if the Bengals won i saw that that's hilarious that's great because my son was mocking me for using a macbook air which i I, if i find out chris how he got a premium fee to jb we're going to have a little talk. <laughs> Let's just say we took care of him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's already like, where's your cool computer? <laughs> like, dude, you're five. God. He's like, well, okay. You know, I was on Matrix this morning talking. Like, hey, stop it, kid. What are you doing? <laughs> no. And that was an exciting game if you're a sports fan. But there is no greater game. I call it Newland Ball. I am so in on this Ukraine stuff. Are you? I have not been this excited about the news since an orange man descended. What is it about it that uh, has you so gripped? I do notice that they're talking about it an awful lot. Well, I t- I'll tell you what it is about it. There's two things. One, anytime Joe Scarborough gets on his, uh, get, get, gets the vapors, I think it's funny. I actually like Joe Scarborough. Yeah, you guys are both uh, fake conservatives. Oh! <laughs> Damn. <laughs> the worst part is the second time I was called a rhino today. <laughs> Weirdly enough, by my ex-mother-in-law. You, you totally derailed me. That was amazing. You know what? They have to put you on Fox News to just go after the apparently my people. I just, I just, I'm impressed that you're so captivated by because I would imagine a lot of us are just like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. All right, so, so you know what the difference is? You, you can see, and not to cut you off, but the, the, just to answer your question, you can actually, if you go back far enough to that beautiful phone call, and even a little before, this is like watching the play. But being able to see behind the scenes, too, behind the stage, too. There is that element, and it's like watching something that's been playing out for for a while kind of come to a head. I agree. I have just felt like, because there's nothing I can do about it, and I, I don't really know how it's going to directly affect me either way, I just am sort of just, I'm just going to wait for something to happen and then pay attention, I think. I'm not sure. I, I waffle on it. I mostly just try to stay focused on work, but every now and then I think about it, it freaks me out. Yeah, it, 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 it's never going to be World War III. Not, not, not for, not, no offense our Ukrainian listeners, but... Not over Ukraine. <laughs> so, sorry, guys. Yeah. All right, well, let's get to the emails. Casey from Austria asks about the maintenance dance. He says, so at the Mad Botter, how do you structure ongoing maintenance for your client project? Software is rarely finished, and even if it's feature complete and the bugs are squashed... Often, there'll be ongoing costs for hosting, backups, etc. I've been self-employed as a software engineer for over a decade. I've been relatively lucky that my clients usually have some kind of sysadmin or ops team that could handle these ongoing costs. However, 
Recently, I found my client base shifting to clients who don't really have the capacity to manage the hosting themselves. So I'm in a situation where I need to have a solid story for how I take care of the client after the main engagement wraps up. Do you sell retainer contracts? Are those based on hours or something else? Like, do you sell fixed hosted plans? What would they include? Any horror stories to share or any tips to pass along would be great too. Thanks and cheers from Austria. That's a lot. There's a lot in there. Yeah, I do try to sell maintenance contracts and I almost never succeed. Mm. Because in truth, at least my experience, people willing to buy maintenance contracts usually want additional development too. And you end up spending a lot of time separating maintenance from development. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we just do it, you know, as applications change over time and, and that requires, well, changes, right? that was poorly put. For Alice... It's a license for a year, right? Because this is uh, basically, it's a, it's not really a SaaS, but it, it's getting there every day, closer and closer. And just, yeah, the ongoing maintenance is part of that license fee. So, and that's probably the closest to a pure, uh, but part of the conditions of that are like, we spin up the instance, we control it. You keep your grubby hands off. I kind of do get the impression from his email that he's getting asked the question because he says I need to have a solid story for how I take care of the client after main engagement wraps up. So maybe he is getting asked. So it seems like maybe having a maintenance option is a good idea, but I don't know if you need to lead the initial sale or any of that with, with that. The thing that becomes complex is deciding what is a maintenance quote, you know, issue that you just fix for that flat fee and what is effectively a modification. So if I were to do that, I would probably just say you buy it like a lawyer, right? You buy a retainer of hours. I've done that in the past. It's fine. That's definitely approach like buy a four hour package. It kind of depends on what you're maintaining. If you're maintaining server infrastructure for them, that might be a little more straightforward. You know, because Mike's right. If you're maintaining code, doing maintenance updates or fixing things or adding support for new importers or something like that, that's a whole different cost structure versus running a VPS that you're sub-leasing to them or a system that you have in a data center. And then there, that's pretty straightforward to figure out the cost for that. You just look at your costs. That almost sells itself if that's what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, if it's something you control, then you should know your costs and you just do some number greater than that that makes sense to make it worth it for you, right? If it's just like pure custom dev where they're going to end up hosting it themselves. And like, there's some admin on their side that is, you know, gets to pick what he or she wants and how they want to go on. That's a little trickier, right? You know, the more uniform your systems are, the presumably, right, one hopes, it, the more efficient you are at maintaining it. All right, listener Mike is freaking out. He says, okay, I was listening to you guys talk about VR recently. It was beyond gaming, which is the first time I really thought about that much. And then I recently had an experience at a friend's house with an Oculus 2, and I was pretty impressed with how far it's come. Then when I heard you guys talking about virtual meetings and maybe even using VR on the plane, it really clicked for me, and my mind was blown. At the risk of sounding like the dad in the room, though, are you guys at all worried about the possible addictive nature of VR? The small amount of VR I did was so immersive. It was so honestly disorienting to come out of it well, I'm old enough to remember a world before smartphones, and now we're all just seemingly hopelessly addicted to them. So what's VR going to do? I'm reminded of Jeff Goldblum's quote in Jurassic Park, where he says, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. What are your thoughts? Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, if you've ever read your William Gibson, this is a problem, right? <laughs> this is a, 
I, I don't even think it's a possibility. I think it's a certainty once it gets good enough, if it gets good enough. And we, and we know this because people get addicted to things like World of Warcraft. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is in a lot of ways, I just not even an opinion. This is absolutely true. Right. People of uh, Robin Hood, the uh, for those who don't know, the uh, what would you, I would call it a gambling app, but I don't feel like getting <laughs> sued. So we'll call it an investment app. Yeah. Stocks for retail investors. You know, there was a couple of young men who destroyed their lives. One young man killed himself because it is addictive. Right. Mm, yeah. It's, so, you know, uh, we have a casino not too far from the studio and I have gone in there with friends on occasion and I see people who are basically just sitting there rotting away on those slot machines. Yeah, it's definitely a bad, it's a bad human behavior. I mean, just think about it. Think about like an MMO in like the, an Oculus five, right? Like a really souped up, you know, few generations out and you feel like you're you know, a wizard or whatever. Flying? Oh, God, how cool would it be to fly around an open world? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I have a buddy who has a, a home-built uh, flight simulator that is annoyingly better than mine, and uh, I can't wait to get over it. Yeah. yeah, I was just talking to my buddy Alex about using flight sim in VR, because he just got a VR kit. Yep. And he says it's just, it's blow away good. Like, he flew over a campground that he stayed in as a kid, and he could recognize it in the flight sim. I agree. All these are things are problems. I don't really see what VR is changing about it. Like I'm sitting in front of screens, one, two, three, four, five screens right now. And I sat in front of four screens all morning while we worked on things this morning. So like I already spend probably 10 hours a day in front of a screen. And then sometimes after I'm done with dinner and whatnot, I sit down, I turn the TV on and I watch TV for a bit too. So I'm already living that world. I'm just doing it with a crappier resolution. Uh, and a crappier experience, right? And at least with VR, there's going to be things that get me up and moving, where right now all of it's done on my butt unless I electively choose to stand there and stare at a screen. So I actually think in some ways VR is going to improve the situation because some of those games are actually quite a workout. And so there's, you know, there may be a positive aspect to it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of negatives too, though, right? Think about the adult industry. I mean, we've all seen the next generation Star Trek, right? How many episodes are there about some poor bastard? Barkley. Like, yeah. Right. Just like in the holodeck, he can't get, yeah, he's just like so yeah. hooked on it. I mean, yeah, I suppose. But the real thing's always going to be better, right? Like you're always going to have a better experience eating a, a great meal in the real world or sex or meeting somebody. Like the real world thing is always going to probably, because it, it's a touch and feel thing as well. I don't know. You know, the more I think about it, the more I think it's really just going to be as bad as it is now. I really don't. I mean, it's just, just going to look dorkier because we're going to have these things on our heads. Yeah, don't worry. Multi-billion dollar corporations have for a very long time been working on addicting you and screwing with your dopamine. Right, they've already got you. I mean, have you heard of Anheuser-Busch or, you know, all the cigarette companies? I'm just saying lots of things are addictive. So Dinesh writes in looking for some wisdom. He says, hello, guys, a regular listener of the show here over the past few weeks. I've been enjoying hearing about Mike's experience with Python. Being a Python developer myself, it's always interesting to see people speak the serpent language. However, one thing's got me thinking. Given Mike's experience with a few different languages, is there a template or process which is followed, that I think he means you follow, to make decisions about the tech to use for a specific project? Or is it just about trying out new things and, hey, maybe there's a chance it works? I'm curious to know about the architecture choices and how they're made. Thanks for the great content. Cheers. Yeah, so uh, it is not just about trying new things. That's the easiest uh, way to, for one to start with. 
I kept getting requests for Python. And we got one pretty substantial request that we had been doing it here and there a little bit. But in terms of that type of development, i.e. web applications, uh, mostly a Ruby shop, that is now all completely reversed. Mostly Python and for, for a couple of years now. I try to keep up, I guess. Like I, I have a practice where I do like what I, I've talked about them years ago, Code Kata's like little programming exercise in uh, I think it's Coding Hero is the website, but now I just, there's a Reddit for it too. I just do them from. I can't say that I always pick up the new thing, right? I mean, when Node was the new hotness, I spent probably a year here just bashing the crap out of it, and I still stand by all of that. <laughs> Case like last week where I've changed my mind a bit, Swift, right? Where I, I understand why you would want to use Swift, even over Objective-C, but that's mostly because Apple have become difficult about you know putting things in Objective-C. Why Python particularly? Well, you know, that is a question, right? So one of the challenges, in fact, we had a meeting on Friday, is Python's not exactly performant. Neither was Ruby, but for... And make sure I phrase this right. Most of the time, the client, you know, development work for hire stuff, they're more interested, for us at least, the kind of things we do in just getting it done at a reasonable performance, and we're always tweaking performance as we go. Yeah. Sometimes, like right now with Alice, we are hitting some some walls that I'm starting to look at, you know, more like Rust, you know, Rust modules or C modules, because straight throughput is becoming a problem. You know, I won't use anything that I have to pay for, right? Like any proprietary, like weird stuff. I don't know. I try things that look interesting. Like I like Rust. I think in the last few years, the new quote language that's excited me the most is Rust. Although there's a lot of chaos over there for reasons that I still don't understand. But in fact, Chris, we kind of just dropped that story completely, the whole kerfluffle. Yeah. Well, they aren't giving us much. You know, there was some more departures, but they claimed they were not related to the recent community stuff. I'm watching. I'm watching. But that group has traditionally been very tight-lipped. You know, you don't talk about Fight Club. You don't talk about Crab Club. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode is fast and reliable cloud hosting. It's how we host everything, and you got to try it for your next project. Especially now that Linode has been rolling out upgrades to their storage, NVMe PCIe storage, and it's crazy fast. We're currently experimenting with the idea of moving our matrix database over to NVMe storage and the back-end database for our Castablaster system, which manages all of the encoding and metadata and processing of our shows up on Linode. Yeah, we do all of that stuff up on Linode, too. Our editors submit a final flack with all of their amazing skills applied to making the show sound great. That goes up to a system on Linode, and in it, it does all the processing from there. It pushes it out to all of our different endpoints on different social media platforms and RSS feeds and all of that. And we're looking at our different workloads and thinking, okay, well, what should we move over to their S3 object storage? What should we move over to NVMe block storage? Like, that's our math right now. And if you're a performance hound, Linode's the way to go. They've got screaming fast CPUs, screaming fast disks, and a screaming fast network interface. They are their own ISP. And they got 11 data centers around the world. So you're going to find something close to yourself or your clients. And Linode's been doing this for almost 19 years. And it just keeps getting better and better all the time. They got new stuff they're working on and the stuff they've rolled out, they nail it. 
You know, what they've learned is to focus and do things right. And they're not trying to lock you into some sort of crazy, complex, proprietary, hyperscaler platform. You can use industry standard tools like Terraform and Kubernetes or their straightforward API or even just their beautiful dashboard. It's all straightforward. You're going to get started in no time. And it's a great way to support the show. If you've been thinking about doing it, now's the time. It really is great. Linode.com slash coder. Big congratulations to everyone who's ever worked on .NET and all of those of you who took a bet on something crazy for Microsoft. It just hit 20 years. .NET Framework 1.0 came out 20 years ago, February 14th, 2002. That makes me feel old. You know, I was looking up news clippings from that time. It was a different time. First of all, I just got to say it. What's .NET? I thought it was called J Sharp. I thought it was called .NET Core. I mean, Ooh. I thought it was called Mono. No, actually, you know, I was looking, I was trying to look back at the timeline because that there are like big moments in all of this timeline. And, and definitely it was in 2016 at Microsoft Build when they announced the whole like Mono was coming in as part of the .NET Foundation. It was going under an MIT license. I mean, that also followed acquisition of Zamarian or Xamarin. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, 2016, which we, I remember doing the show then. At least I seem to recall we were doing the show then. We were, yeah. And I seem to recall having a very skeptical take on how this was all going to go because we really were, we, that was really at the beginning of wrapping our heads around what Microsoft was doing with the development community. And that was really around the beginning of this big shift internally, I think, on their approach to open source. Uh, you know what? I need a Decker cane. Yeah. You want to tell us a little story? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Stay a while and listen. All right. Our younger listeners. I am going to make some statements that you are not going to believe. But here we go. They're all true. In 2002, not just Microsoft, not just Sun, and let's all pour one out and cry a little bit. The entire industry, more or less, and mainstream business press, believed that Java was the terminal point of all languages. Right, Java was going to take over the world. There was a breathless email from Bill Gates freaking the hell out about Java, right? That is why you have .NET. It was originally Microsoft's answer to Java, so much so that they implemented Java and called it JSharp. That didn't last too long. That is some good history. You're right. In fact, when Gates freaked out about it, a lot of people freaked out about it. It was everywhere, right? Java was going to be everywhere. It was going to be in your... Did we, what would we call them? We called them uh, micro edition. Remember Java micro edition for like your quote, we would call it IoT today. It was in mobile. Your, those crappy flip phones ran Java. Some people, when they were young and needed the money, wrote Java. It's, they're very, very sorry. Don't forget too about those horrendous, horrendous cable set top boxes, that whole industry. DVD players. Remember when this DVD and Blu-ray first shipped with Java apps on the Blu-ray player? <laughs> and this was a, a seismic like horrible it, it was like their sputnik moment over at microsoft because it was truly right most developers at the time your mainstream developers a lot of them were doing either like vbasic not vb.net vbasic or c and java was such a um how would you say less of a pain in the ass than c but more powerful than, I'll say more powerful than VBasic. I know people will fight. 
as we talk a little bit more about like where .NET is today, keep the context in your head that this was effectively a defensive rear guard action at Microsoft. Because Sun, beautiful, sweet, never learned how to make any goddamn money, Sun, was so threatening to them. Go on, Chris, where are we today? I was just thinking, well, now we're in a world where you kind of exert your control through open source and foundation participation. Back in this era, they also started working on their Flash competitor. So they were fighting this fight on multiple fronts. And what was that called? Silver something, right? Silverlight. Silverlight. Yeah, Silverlight. .NET obviously didn't turn out like Silverlight. .NET turned out to be a very wise investment, but it is so fun to revisit the original motivations there. And now here we are. Sun is no more. They have gifted us a file system and left us. <laughs> It'll always be too soon. True. They had some seriously cool hardware. And some seriously bad business, man. <laughs> but some great ponytails. Maybe the ponytails didn't help. I'm just saying. <laughs> Especially back then. You know, congratulations.net. 20 years. Yes, you you helped kill one of the most interesting. You know what? We're not going to go here. How's Oracle now? Actually, one more thing on the Microsoft thing. Datadog.com slash Coder Radio. Go there and sign up for a free two-week trial and get a free t-shirt. Datadog is the SaaS monitoring and security platform that enables full-stack observability for developers, IT operations, security, and business teams in the cloud age. Datadog's platform, along with its 500-plus vendor-backed integrations, allows you to correlate your metrics, your traces, your logs, and security signals across your applications, infrastructure, and third-party services in a single beautiful pane of glass. These capabilities, combined with the drag-and-drop dashboards and machine learning-based alerts, help teams troubleshoot and collaborate more effectively. This prevents downtime, it enhances performance, reliability, and your communications. So we got an exclusive offer to Coder Radio listeners. Sign up for a two-free-week trial at datadog.com slash Radio. That's how you support the show, too, and get a free Datadog t-shirt. <laughs> how great is that? So that's datadog.com slash Radio, all one word. Get that free t-shirt, and happy monitoring. Microsoft's playing 3D chess, and I think Apple is still playing checkers here. Microsoft not only has been pulling the strings with the Epic lawsuit. But now, Microsoft has published a set of principles that will guide their app store. Except the one they make money on, yes. It, you know, In light of the process starting around the regulatory oversight of the Activision Blizzard purchase, Microsoft wanted to make it clear that they are committed to an open app store, one that allows game makers to make revenue directly. Microsoft said, we have developed these principles in part to address our growing role and responsibilities. We start the process of seeking regulatory approval in capitals around the world for our acquisition of Activision Blizzard. This is coming from Brad Smith. And uh, the effort is really to paint Microsoft as this open player. Microsoft's strategy is really the long game here against Apple. Because if they can break Apple's 30% cut of Microsoft Office and Xbox games and anything Microsoft related that gets sold on the iOS app store, if they can break that cut, then it's worth no profits from the Windows app store because they don't make any money now anyways. They're essentially offering to make no money in a platform they already make no money in exchange for Apple losing everything. 
<laughs> um, I think it's pretty wild. I, I, you know what? You know, I, I, if Microsoft can pull it off, maybe it's better for everybody. Maybe it's a good thing. But I think it's really interesting to watch them play this chess game while pretending like the good guy and appealing to the regulators with promises of their open Windows store. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm always excited to screw over Apple on this App Store stuff, but this doesn't, this seems like weak tea to me. I don't, I don't think this is going to work. I don't know. I think it might, at least in terms of getting the Activision Blizzard deal passed. Microsoft, you know, like Dave Jones, he sent us a boost from his new podcast app, and he said, what Microsoft learned from their antitrust debacle is that they need to up their D.C. lobbyist game. So now they have one of the most effective lobbying machines in D.C. That's why you never hear their name mentioned in the halls of Congress anymore, despite their size and behavior. Like, so they figured out how to lobby, how to, how to basically own the representatives they need to own, and now how to appeal to the world, to the, other, to the rest of the world regulators by, by claiming that, you know, we're willing to be a totally open store that doesn't need a cut. Yeah, but only where we don't make a significant money because they explicitly say the Xbox is still going to be the way it is. If I were Microsoft and I were talking to some lawmaker who had questions, I'd probably have some huge number that was like derived from the sales of Office that get downloaded through the store and claim that the store generates, you know, $400 million a year. Add in those team subscriptions too while you're at it, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah right. So you could see how they could cook the books to make it look like it's a pretty big sacrifice. I mean, great. I love it. Mud and Apple's eye, right? But I feel like what really happened here is Apple continues to, for whatever reason, be super, super petulant about this. And as a guy who has been known to be petulant, I I get it. But they're just not like, like they just got slapped again by by the Dutch authorities. You know, if Jobs was alive, we'd all be saying this is Steve's fault. This is Steve. He's so pigheaded. You know, he's so stubborn. He's so vindictive. Like everybody would just claim it's Steve Jobs' personal decision. But now that he's dead, people are looking for all these explanations. And it just has to come down to this. Apple's looking at how many iPhones they sell. They're looking at what the potential market size is. And they're looking at the lifetime of these iOS devices, especially things like the iPad and Apple TV. And they're looking at the App Store revenue and they're thinking, this is our 50-year moneymaker here. You know, I listen to other podcasts and a lot of them seem to be putting like the Apple execs on the couch. And I kind of feel like maybe that's partially fair that like, you know, it's Apple culture to be kind of a, a jerk about things. But they have to know, right? These aren't dumb people. They have very fancy lawyers. They have lobbyists. They have to know that they're gonna, they're going to have to compromise. And I think they're just doing the classic New Jersey style business negotiation of I'm going to start at the most insane position possible. And then I'm eventually going to concede at the last second and give you what I was already going to give you anyway. Yeah. And if you project the entire time, like you're in the right, you know, like it almost weakens your hand if you start capitulating at all, because it sort of shows that, you know, you're in the wrong. But also it's like, who is going to enforce? Okay, Congress could pass a law. Maybe. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's super duper likely. I know they're trying. How about some regulators? So would that be the FTC? All right. 
So the FTC sues them. Apple's like, we're one of one of, if not the richest company in the world, we can do this forever. Well, and there needs to be some kind of law they're breaking. So there has to be something that changes that they are then in violation of. Yeah. And maybe, you know, as as a fake conservative, I sometimes play one on, on the interwebs. Maybe I just don't think Mitch McConnell particularly cares about this and therefore it's not going to happen. And maybe I'm wrong, right? Who knows? The reason people keep saying the show is turning into like unfiltered too. Nobody says that. Do they say that? I say it to myself in the mirror every morning. I mean, you don't want to give people fuel. They'll they'll run with that. They don't. I, I actually, like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's because these companies are so big and powerful. The only entities that could actually maybe stand up to them also happen to have navies. They're trillion dollar plus companies. Yeah. It isn't like a bunch of like you know fun companies with some young folks and we're all chilling. It. I, I love System Seventy Six because it's nostalgia. But when they eventually take over the world and join Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard, Vivendi, I'll be sad too, right? It's like we yearn for just a small, genuine, independent business these days. Like when I talk about Linode in the ads, I mention the fact that they are independent. Yeah. Like that's a huge deal, right? It's not, it's not very common anymore. And it's a mistake I made for a bit. I had to go through the process to fully appreciate the repercussions. I hear you. I mean, let, let's do a bacon competition for a minute. How does this end in your mind, This uh, all this App Store stuff? Well, it feels like Microsoft is four steps ahead of Apple, right? Like Microsoft has known it was going to end up inevitably at this point. And they've been getting things lined up to grease the wheels for this Activision Blizzard. They've known for a year what direction Blizzard was going in, right? We established that recently. That in itself is horrific, but yeah. So they've been watching, they've been circling Blizzard for a year while the stock dropped 50% in value and their founder was engulfed in, or their CEO was engulfed in controversy. And during that time, they supplied Epic with documentation and legal time to go after Apple and possibly some money too, it seems, while also planning to grease the wheels around the world with the regulators. How Apple was clever about the M1 transition, Microsoft is very clever about this Blizzard Activision acquisition, right? They have been laying the groundwork for at least a year, probably more. I don't think I can convey how savvy this move is and how alarming it is to me that Microsoft is still very dangerous. You are like warming my black little heart here. Really? <laughs> I am like full on nihilism here. Like, I don't think Apple's just making a mistake. I think they know they're going to basically win because, you know, the government of the United States barely functions. Yeah, it could be. They are extremely legally savvy. They have a pretty strong case. Like, we, we, we can't really put a finger on what rule they've broken. They set the terms for their own store, and Epic clearly violated those terms intentionally. Well, even by the most aggressive, and let's say politicians, right, the political critics, you know, like a Klobuchar, her remedy is to pass a new law. Sure. Can you do it? Right. Can you do it to the point where it is, in fact, you know, it's a it's a wolf with some teeth. Can you be a wolf warrior if you get that reference? I'm very sorry. Or are you going to be like a little chihuahua that maybe nips, nips them in the heels? Because I, I just don't see a law with real teeth getting through both houses of Congress. I see maybe a, a, some kind of Mickey Mouse rubber, you know, like slap on the wrist. I don't know. Like people are talking about there's some bill to do sideloading or to mandate sideloading. I'd eat my hat if that happened. I just, it's never going to happen. 
the issue with these bills, too, is unfortunately, they're not really written by our representatives or their staff. They're written by industry groups and then given to our representatives. So, number one, that probably means in the, any anti-Apple industry group is probably not as savvy as Apple's team is. But it's hard to say. Their DC game isn't the best. Or their Microsoft's lobbyists, right? That, that would be who would do it. Right. Microsoft's lobbyists, yes. Microsoft's DC game is clearly superior. It's fascinating because, you know, Apple's had to resort to Tim Cook personally calling representatives and the White House. Like, that's desperate. Microsoft has institutionalized their DC engagement, right? It is an active part of the company. It's on the balance sheet. It's something they staff for. Apple is, I mean, yeah, they participate in, gr- in lobbyist groups, don't get me wrong, but they don't have the savvy team that Microsoft does. Really, you are filling me with hope and light today. IBM is in a lot of trouble right now. You don't necessarily hear this very often with, when it comes to controversy, but it is striking. I didn't even know they were still there. IBM apparently labeled older workers, quote unquote, older workers that are 50 and up as dino babies. Wow. Did they hire Mike Morheim? Is that what happened? <laughs> so, this sounds like <laughs> this does sound like like a comedy almost. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of, not Mike Morheim, Bobby Kotick. Sorry. <laughs> so documents were released in an age discrimination case that appear to show high level discussions at IBM about paring down the ranks of older employees. IBM executives were directly involved in discussions about the need to reduce a portion of older employees at the company, sometimes referring to them as dino babies. And they've released a trove of documents in federal district court on Friday. Jesus, guys. I know. Here's a quote. We've discussed the fact that our millennial population trails our competitors. This is one email from an executive at the time. It goes on to say, the data below is very sensitive, not to be shared, but I wanted to make sure you have it. You'll see while Accenture is 72% millennials, we are at 42% with a wide range of many units following well below that average, speaking to the need to hire early professionals, which I guess early professionals was a company's term for somebody who is like new, didn't have much experience. Uh, See, the problem is, is they needed to, quote, accelerate change by inviting the dino babies to leave. It's Blade Runner. And make them a, quote, extinct species. Whoa. Oh, (laughs) yeah. A third email refers to IBM's, quote, dated maternal workforce, which was an apparent implication to the older women at IBM. And it said, quote, this is what must change. They really don't understand social or engagement. Not digital natives. A real threat for us. That's like the hat trick. All they were missing was something racist. They they got misogyny and ageism in in one. (laughs) What's incredible, too, is... This was a group of probably, you know, 50 to 60 year old men and women, right? I was going to say the upper level executives at IBM, they have to be older dudes mostly, right? Like, Honestly, you and I know this. This is how a lot of companies speak internally. Yeah. I have been at a client of mine where I was consulting them because of an acquisition and they wanted to speak to somebody who knew their IT infrastructure. And one of the things they just openly spoke about in this meeting, uh, and this is a local company here in Washington that nobody ever hear of, but one, I was shocked is they knew the numbers of people that were on antidepressants through the insurance program. They didn't have the names of the people, but they knew exactly how many people were taking what drug. That seems not good. And they had the open conversation of like, do we have too many people at, at, at work on antidepressants? And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Now, this is, this is probably 2009 or 10. So this is, you know, a little while ago now. 
I'm sure companies still have this. This is the way these 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 companies think and speak, right? Humans that work for them are a resource that they move around. That's why they have human resource departments that they now have given new euphemisms. The other thing that strikes me here is there is actually a bit of truth to all of this. I have also been at places where the older staff don't get it. They don't get the internet. They don't get the expectations of a younger generation. They just don't get it. And so they have been a bit of a challenge, but this, you don't work them out. You find the work, especially at a company the size of IBM, right? There's going to be a position there that works for them. It's ruthless because you got to assume some of these people probably worked there for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, right? They gave a massive portion of their life to this company and then they get to a certain age and the executives who are their same age have to get rid of them because they're a quote real threat for us thanks <laughs> don't let the door hit you on the way out i don't even know what to say this is just i know it's gross it's gross yeah we can argue about the app store stuff there's you know there's multiple perspectives there's really not two sides to this this is just like you guys are a bunch of dicks and I want to make it clear that this was years ago. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the exact date because uh, I've apparently I've looked at the New York Times.com too many times this month, so I no longer get access to information. Paywall. Because that's the link I grabbed. But uh, it, I, I want to say it was like 2006 or something. It was a while ago. The, I guess when the documents happened or when it went down or something like that. That makes sense, too, because that would be it's just gross, right? Well, and the, other, the funny thing is now here we are, the, some of the older millennials, they're hitting their 40s, right? So these millennials that they had to hire to save the company, well, some of them are only about 10 years away from the age where they were trying to, you know, call the herd. Like, it's just kind of wild. It's nonsensical. Like, work with these people. It's just, it's gross. Well, I don't even think the premise is necessarily true, right? Older, I'm assuming these people must be managers by now, right? Like older managers don't necessarily need to know the new shiny. Just I don't know. It's it's like if you just maybe communicated with them or or had like a ongoing you know improvement plan. Like many other companies, such as Accenture, their main competitor, who's kicking their ass has. Right. Well, a lot of these times it's probably just they don't appreciate the value of learning something new. So you just as a you know, your mission is to do outreach and demonstrate the value. Okay. Is it also just cheaper to hire young people though? Because this this sounds a little, now that I'm reading, I just brought up the New York Times, I'm thinking, mm, I bet these older folks have also been getting their, you know, N percent raises every year. They've accrued a lot of perks, right? A lot of time. Frankly, the mention of the older women is, there's probably a lot of not a good stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've I've heard gross conversations of people being like, well, we're going to hire this woman. You know, she's like, she looks like she's in her early 30s. And then what if we hire her and we have to pay a maternity leave? And it's like, people are scumbags. I have heard that conversation as well. So I don't, I think the folks suing them should eat their lunch and IBM should not do the skin. Well, I don't think they will. Optimus Gray got the date. Uh, it looks like it was in 2018 where these apparently things happened. Oh, boy. It's reported that IBM fired about 20,000 American employees over the age of 40 back then. So 60% of its total U.S. job cuts. Ah, so this is this is connected back to that big layoff they did in 2018. Oh, uh, but then they also offshore a bunch of that? Offshored, and it looks like the majority of the people they laid off were the older folks. Quote, unquote, older. Yeah, I'm going to go with money. That I actually, at the time, remember I remember specifically 
people on Twitter that used to work there making that exact point that this is about money. So you might be onto something there. I just wanted to mention before we wrap up, I did on your recommendation sign up for the Xbox streaming service. Oh, I had to get like the ultimate one so that way I could do the web streaming thing. It's only a buck for the first month, so I'm giving that a go. But I, they don't tell you this when you're signing up. It's stupid obvious now, but when you, when you sign up and you go to launch your first game, you have to have a supported controller, which I have, but didn't have with me. So I didn't get to try it this morning. So I'm going to try it out later this week and I'll tell you what I think next week. But so far, the, the experience feels smoother. I have to say that I do have an Xbox controller, so I'll hook that up. I did think it was kind of slick with Stadia. When I signed up for Stadia, they gave me a package that included a controller and a Chromecast that showed up. And then you just you knew you just had something that worked out of the box with the service. And that was really kind of nice. Whereas with this service, I'm probably just going to have a mix of different controllers depending on what computer I'm at. But I'll give it a go. I'm actually, the more I think about it, skeptical that this is even going to work for Microsoft. Because I would propose to you, people that are really into game streaming are people who are casual gamers. And the most expensive aspect of running this service is going to be spinning up the VMs and allocating the resources and creating the machines for a game session. And I often play for 10, 15 minutes and then bail and try another game, play for 10, 15 minutes, see if it's the right fit and then bail. And I've been getting throttled on NVIDIA's service because I think it's too much resources to spin up these machines. And I wonder if that isn't always going to be a problem because if you were super serious about gaming, you'd probably have the hardware. And if, or you're going to be on the other end where you're just like logged in streaming and running the service all the time. It just feels like they're going to have a hard time getting that balance right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you're, I don't think you're going to be playing Halo multiplayer on this. I just don't. I don't know. Whatever. I'm going to try. That's exactly what I want to. Tr- I want to try. It's not going to be an experience that's going to be on par. Why? Latency? Latency. That's what I'm thinking. Eh. You know, I, I would agree if it was a keyboard and mouse game. But when you're playing controller-based games, I don't know. Maybe. Oh, I see. Okay, there's a little bit of a... That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so I see. So if you were playing a real first-person shooter, it would be a problem. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, if I had real controls. Yeah, like, you know, not, like not a baby game. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, I I mean, I love it, but yeah, I like, you know what? I basically exclusively play Marvel versus Capcom and like various indie stuff that they put on there. And those indie games, I mean, these guys haven't left the SNES color palette or, you know, game mechanics for the most part. And they run just fine in Chrome. Right? <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, okay. I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep. I'll try some of those games too. I'll make sure I, I try to try out both sides of the spectrum. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm also going to try it on my Starlink setup. You know, that's the ultimate test: is can you game stream? I remember it's a streaming game service over a Starlink connection. We'll find out. If you're a member, I just want to say thank you. If you haven't become a member yet, maybe consider it. Go to coderqa.co. That's where you sign up. And then you get a tighter episode, something that's just a little bit shorter because we cut out the ads. It still has all of the full production from Drew, but you just get a nicer, shorter production. And you can support the entire network by signing up at Jupiter.party, where you get access to all the shows ad-free. It's pretty sweet. It's a nice way to support us as well. And you get access, either membership program, 
to the Coderly Report, and we just put out a new one recently. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you'd like to send people before we get the heck out of here? Check out Alice.Def and at Dumanuku on Twitter. Yes, the power move. Why don't you join our Matrix server? If you got Matrix set up, it's colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com or we got a Telegram group, if that's your style. That's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. We'd love your feedback. It's a big part of the show. We need more of it. Coder.show slash contact. And you can subscribe to our RSS feed and get it anytime we publish. That's at coder.show slash subscribe. Last but not least, links for this week are at coder.show slash 453. And you can join us live on Mondays. We do it at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining us. See you back here next week.